Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Nick Cooney, the founding and managing partner at Lever VC, a venture capital fund investing in early stage companies in the alternative protein sector with a focus on plant-based and cultivated meat, egg and dairy companies, and more. Nick has been working in the alt protein space for over 15 years and was the co-founder and former managing trustee and investment committee member of the New Crop Capital Venture Capital Trust, as well as the co-founder and former board chair of the Good Food Institute, the world's largest non-governmental organization working to grow the alternative protein space. Nick has invested in over 40 alternative protein deals around the world, including Beyond Meat, Memphis Meats, and other market leaders with combined value of over $7 billion USD. I'd like to welcome Nick Cooney to Subscribing to Wellness. Thanks for joining us today, Nick. Thanks for having me on. You know, Alt Protein is really a space that, that a lot of our listeners are plugged into. And I just think, you know, over the, the last few years, the amount of deal flow that we've seen, um, ranging all the way from seed all the way to later series, series ups and so on, has been super exciting. And so to have someone so, you know, in tune to the VC uh, nature of this space is really exciting. And I mean, I think we're very excited about a lot of different sectors within consumer that are targeting health and wellness. But I would say this one is absolutely the the most active. So very excited to have you on today. Great. Well, indeed, you're right. It's certainly it's a space that's been seeing an increased number of deals, increased amount of sales, and certainly a big uptick in investor interest. So it's it's certainly a good good topic to be having. Yep. For many consumers, you know, the word plant-based, maybe for some it's been of high awareness for a while. I think for a lot of people, it's kind of come to, to fruition maybe over the last few years, especially of course during COVID. I think there was a, a lot of trial being driven just by people making more visits to the grocery store and paying a bit more attention to what was on shelf. But I mean, you've been really focused on this space for I think over 15 years. What got you so excited about all protein so early on? Yeah, great question. So for me, it was a, a personal interest. So I began eating these. I began eating plant based myself a bit over twenty years ago, and so began eating these products around that same time. Certainly, the landscape for these products was super, super different back then. So, for example, at the start, the only thing I knew to find or to buy was dehydrated textured vegetable protein, a very not not good tasting stuff. And then even years later, you know, probably my early twenties. Kind of the best available offerings were canned vegetarian, you know, plant-based hot dogs that again were just not not very good. So it was a, obviously a much much more nascent space back then. But got interested at the time, interested in it at the time because of that personal interest and belief in the value of the space. So the value for things like sustainability, animal welfare, and then of course health and nutrition and wellness as well. So for me, that was the entry point, and then been working in the space for much of my professional career and then began working on the investment side six years ago in 2015. I mean, just going off that last point, you were hitting on how, you know, there's been a lot more awareness, I think, driven to the impact that that protein has on our environment. But what do you think have really been the main sort of developments that you've witnessed within alt protein that have, you know, accelerated its proliferation so rapidly? I mean, certainly there's multiple factors, but the two biggest would be, uh, well, maybe three biggest. So one would be the products just getting better. Not every brand, certainly, but some products in the space being significantly better tasting. And so if you look at 
the quality of the better to best products in say 2010 versus 2015 versus 2020, there's kind of a nice step up with each of those and a, a particularly larger step, I would say in the past three, four, five years with some of the brands in the space. So obviously when people are buying food, taste is time and again, the primary consideration. So that's definitely a key reason that, that the growth has happened. I think realistically speaking, five, six, seven years ago, there were just not products that were good enough to succeed in mainstream QSR. And now there are, for example. So taste is one. Uh, the second I would say would definitely be the investment capital flowing into the space. So again, if we dial back the clock, you know, six, seven, eight years, there was very, very, very little, virtually no capital going into the category. And now, you know, look, look back at 2020, there was just around, around 3 billion USD invested into the category. So certainly that capital is having significant impacts. It's, it's giving much larger marketing budgets to these companies. It's getting them a lot of buzz and attention in the public. And then for the companies that are more tech R&D driven, it's giving them the firepower to create significantly better products. So I say those two things. And then third, there has also been a continued increase, I think, at least in certain parts of the world, in consumer awareness that... A, the food choices we make have significant impacts on the environment and with increasing interest in sustainability, increasing interest in things like plant-based, and B, just on an even more general basis when it comes to things like health or animal welfare, an increasing interest in the benefits that plant-based products have and alternative protein products generally have and will have in these, in these areas. Yep. And I think to complement your point on taste quality, which I think is you know a huge driver in maybe why you said it first, but I think, of course, as technology is advanced across you know, almost all industries that the VCs look at, I think having such greater capacity and ability to do complex thing within kind of the R&D world within plant-based, of course, has accelerated how quickly we can bring higher quality and, and better tasting alt-protein products into market to really meet the needs uh, that consumers have, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've also just wanted to talk a bit kind of in this intro section about the lever portfolio specifically. I think, you know, within the consumer ecosystem, if you're working in venture capital, there are quite a few kind of different subsectors you can be focused on. You can be focused on food, you can be focused on Bev, you can be focused on, you know, skincare or, or personal beauty. And it becomes a little bit easier, not necessarily easy, but a bit easier to, to really create that diversified portfolio. But with the case of all protein, you're really just focused on this one particular subsector within consumer. But it feels like that hasn't really stopped you from really driving diversification within the lever portfolio. You know, you have good plants, plant-based cheese, turtle lab, cell-based milk, bond pet food. Is this diversification a key focus point as you build out the lever portfolio and deploy the fund? Or are there times where you're willing to maybe place a bet on two companies that might be making somewhat similar products? Yeah. So we are open to, to making bets on two companies that are doing similar products, but there is actually enough, a large enough universe of companies and this space is broad enough, even though it's a, a specific subsector within food and ag, that we have, as you pointed out, ha we have a portfolio that is pretty diverse while still being all with an alternative protein. And I think there's a few reasons for that. So one is that if you think about how large the meat and dairy sectors are, and then the ingredient space going into those sectors uh, and related food sectors, you know, these are just massive spaces, both from an uh, annual revenue perspective, but also from a just diversity of what's, what's in them. 
And so we're looking at all of those subcategories, just the alternative protein products that would fill those subcategories. So it is a very, very massive category, very incumbent category that we're sort of playing in. The other thing is geographic diversity. So we are investing globally. And so that also opens up a lot of different opportunities. And then build on top of that, a fact you alluded to there in that you've got a variety of approaches within the all-protein category. So you've got companies doing plant-based meat and dairy. You've got companies working on the higher tech side, producing real meat agri-dairy protein from cell cultivation, from fermentation, growing it in plants, uh, doing other things. And then you have ingredient and service providers into the sector. So there's a lot out there. You know, We have a proprietary database of companies in the alternative protein category we track. There's about 1,800 plus in that, in that database at the moment, and certainly it's growing continually. So it is a pretty big universe. And so indeed, if you look across our portfolio, we've got seven companies in North America, five in Europe, four in Asia, one about to be two in Latin America. We've got a bunch on the plant-based side, a bunch on the higher tech side. Within higher tech, we've got cell-cultivated companies, fermentation-based companies, companies, again, producing animal proteins and plants. So it is a a wide diversity. uh, And certainly, we do have that in mind in in building out the portfolio that we do want that diverse exposure. But that being said, again, there's a significantly larger number of deals in the sector than one might expect just by reading the headlines. So it makes it um, not particularly difficult to have that sort of diverse exposure. Yeah, absolutely. And and when I had talked about your intro, I, I talked a bit about your setup within Hong Kong, within Israel. I think it's pretty unique to see a firm with such a such a global footprint. And would be curious just to understand a little more about what you really see going on outside of the US, whether that's in Singapore or Israel. Obviously, I've seen some really interesting innovation coming out of Singapore with cell-based seafood and so on. Can you maybe talk a bit about you know, what you're seeing across the world and how it kind of differs maybe from the U.S., where other countries are in terms of their technological advancement in this kind of space? Absolutely. So maybe starting on the spectrum closest to the U.S., Western Europe would certainly be the region that's closest, you know, fairly similar. On the plant-based meat side, you don't have, say, a Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods of Western Europe yet, but we've there's a number of brands doing really well. On the dairy side, you've got a company like Oatly, but overall, in terms of deal flow, quality of the products, quality of the technology, uh, market acceptance, Western Europe is pretty similar to the U.S. Uh, but going from there into you know perhaps more different regions, so you, there's a few different things. So depending on where you're looking, so if you look at uh, two of the countries you noted, Singapore and Israel, you have in both of those places, relative to the size of the population, a huge number of startups in the category and a huge number of startups that are on the higher technology side of the category as well, in all aspects of cultivated, fermented, et cetera, proteins. So a lot of tech IP innovation happening in those countries, I think driven by a number of factors, including government support for that, culture of entrepreneurship, especially in Israel, and to some extent, real concern around food and sustainability in the future of food for a country like Singapore in the natural uh, national interest. So they've set their national goal of being 30% food self-sufficient within the next 10 years or so. And Israel, uh, just this culture of entrepreneurship, but also this very strong interest in food and the impacts of animal protein on sustainability and animal welfare and so on. So we've got a few places like that that are, I'd say, fairly exceptional exceptional in terms of per capita, high-tech, and just general companies in this category. If we look at some other regions, it's a, there's a diversity of things. So if we look to Latin America, for example, 
in Brazil, the sector is at a more nascent stage, but starting to take off very, very quickly. So you've got uh, companies growing in sales and points of sale very quickly. We've invested in one, about to close a deal with a second company down there. And uh, if we, if you look at mainstream retail, the largest retailer in Brazil announced at the end of last year, the end of 2020, that in 2020, plant-based burger sales accounted for roughly 30% of burger sales in their stores. Just you know, a massive percentage. And it's not quite as impressive as it sounds because burger sales are not nearly the size of a category in Brazil as they are in, say, the U.S., but it is a sign of, of just these, how much these products are catching on. If you go to a grocery store down there, in, in the, at least in the bigger cities like a Sao Paulo or Rio, there is as much, if not more, retail shelf space at mainstream retail devoted to plant-based meat products and, and dairy products than there is in many grocery stores in the U.S. It's quite impressive. So it's early. You know, the, the total dollars in sales are obviously way, way lower than the U.S., but it's starting to grow very quickly. There's huge consumer interest. And there's starting to be a couple good quality brands. I would say that the gist of that is uh, what I noted for Brazil is similar to what we see in a few, a few other areas. So for example, China is another region where you know, we're investing in, we have partners there, and we view it as an area of, of huge amount of opportunity. And we see the sector starting to grow very quickly there. A lot of startups, major food companies also launching their own plant-based meat or dairy brands. Not as much on the high technology side, but a couple of super exciting high technology companies, which we ourselves have invested in there. Um, and uh, the product quality starting to get better. I wouldn't say there's a lot of outstanding uh, high quality, say plant-based meat products yet, but there's a couple that are, that are quite exciting and starting to grow very quickly. And all of the right, much like Brazil, all of the right social elements there to give tailwinds to the space, strong government support, uh, interest from the public. Your surveys show very high interest in plant-based meat as well as cell-cultivated meat in China. Strong re regulatory landscape, a lot of consumer openness to novel foods, and so forth. So, it's it's also again at a, a more nascent stage, but a lot of energy and momentum and interest there. You gave an incredible overview, and I'm always super impressed just by the innovation coming out of some of these smaller countries like Singapore, like Israel the commitment of their local governments to really supporting the sector. I think Brazil is also a very interesting dynamic. You kind of have JBS acquiring plant-based meat companies while also trying to kind of future-proof their own portfolio. You have Future Farm out of Brazil starting to make their way over into the U.S. with a new round of funding. And then I think you guys also supported the, com the company called The New, correct? That's right. So indeed, so the new, uh, formerly called the new butchers, now the new, they're essentially the, the main competitor to, to Future Farm. Great, great quality products, range of plant-based meats, grow, younger company, but growing super quickly. Yeah, very exciting. And then just to switch the subject a bit, I wanted to ask if you were betting on one particular product or subsector within all protein, where you'd be kind of most confident. And I just to state my opinion, I, I don't I don't necessarily think I'm right or wrong. I think imitating the quality of taste of milk, you know, through plant-based alternatives, it's not easy, but it feels a lot easier than, you know, trying to imitate a filet mignon or, you know, a high quality piece of bacon or sausage. Is there a certain way that you lean in terms of like confidence in kind of the future of a certain subsector within alt protein? From an investment point of view, I think that if one were trying to 
make an investment while one were to, could have the highest level of confidence that you get a decent low risk payoff from it. You'd want to look for a plant-based meat or dairy brand that's got a very good product, good brand, going growing quite quickly, and the valuation deal terms make sense. So, I mean, from if we're talking about confidence from that perspective, I would say that's kind of the the most slam dunk when you can identify that sort of opportunity. But in terms of sort of longer term trends, I'd say to, to me, there's two things that I would have very high levels of confidence in. So one is that the plant-based uh, sector, uh, plant-based meat and dairy sectors will continue to grow quite significantly. Now, what they ultimately plateau at, I think that's much harder to predict at this point, but it's going to be a percentage market share much higher than it is right now. And so and and you know we've seen what what works there right it's a it's a good to extremely good quality product with a good brand and so i think that as there are companies that do those things in places like the us but also in a number of these emerging markets around the world uh that's there's going to be opportunity there for for many years to come the second thing i would say is that if we talk about the higher tech side of things uh, I think longer term, um, you know, absolutely. There's a, a huge, I think, a huge number of things we will see with animal proteins from cell cultivation, fermentation, plants, etc., coming into the the market at a significant way. In the shorter term, you know, the companies that we're most excited by on the higher tech side are companies that either at the core or as a, a key part of what they're doing are working essentially on the ingredient side, either where they're producing an ingredient that can go into plant-based products and make plant-based products taste or function very significantly better, or they are going to market with their own products, but their own products, at least in the, the shorter to midterm, are blended products that are not trying to be, say, 100% cultivated meat, but are a mixture of that along with plant-based ingredients and so on. You know, I feel high level of confidence, that general approach for companies that do well will work out quite quite well based on having tried some of these products and just seeing how much better plant-based products become when you add certain animal protein ingredients into them that are produced via cultivation or fermentation or similar, number one. And then number two, obviously the benefit of having this ingredient approach or hybrid approach is it just drops the cost down dramatically. So cost being the main factor for these companies getting their products and services onto market if you can slash that cost by 70%, 90%, 95% by using only small inclusion rates of the, the product or ingredient in the final final item, just of course makes it much easier to get to market quickly and at a price point that works. So I would say those two things, cultivated, fermented, plant-derived animal protein as ingredient inputs or portions of plant-based products, number one, and the number two, just plant-based meat and dairy growing generally, those are the things I would have high confidence around in the next three, five, 10 years. Yeah, absolutely agree, especially on the ingredient perspective, just because a successful ingredient company is going to unlock so much potential for so many of these other startups that, that rely on those kind of ingredients, right, to scale their products. And then just asking a more general question, you talked a lot about product quality and taste. You know, when you're assessing opportunities and meeting with entrepreneurs for the first time and going through diligence processes, is taste the number one factor? What are some of those like top three to five factors or variables that you're really weighing when when I'm making an investment decision out of the lever portfolio? 
Yeah, so the set would be a bit different on the plant-based side versus the higher tech side. Obviously, there's the the more typical things you'd look for in any deal. So the, the valuation, which which can be a question mark in this space, we're seeing an increasing number of valuations that absolutely do not make sense. Usually driven by investors that don't know know the sector as well, particularly in the U.S. I would say much more so in the U.S. than than really anywhere else. So valuation deal terms, obviously quality of the team, you know, another pretty obvious thing in terms of things that are more sector specific. So yes, taste is definitely one. And for us, we would only invest in it. We only invest in a company if we both to our own taste buds and tasting them against competitors. And also we'll often do small consumer taste test panels. If we think from, from those data inputs that the company is in the number one or number two slot in terms of quality in the categories that it's in and in the broad geographic region that, that it's in. So Good Planet, you mentioned earlier, you know, in our view, they're one of the two best plant-based cheese companies in the world. You could look at our other companies in the portfolio and it would be the same. So, so that's definitely one of those things we're looking for. Another thing would be a large enough total addressable market. As the number of startups entering the plant-based meat and dairy space has grown, We've seen an increasing number getting to pretty niche areas that don't have very large total addressable markets, that don't have the potential for the sort of long-term return that we're looking for as an early stage fund. So large enough addressable market, and then com- uh, spaces that are not overly competitive. Now, that could be a product category, or it could be geography, or it could be a combination of those. Example of what we wouldn't invest in, I, I think we'd be extremely unlikely to invest in, say, a uh, high-quality, premium plant-based burger brand in the U.S. Just super tough competition. We've also shied away from conventional, more general plant-based fluid uh, milk uh, companies because it's just much more challenging category based on the number of players and the incumbents, at least in, in, say, North America. So we're we're more interested in, in categories where it is much more open, either because there's not many companies in the category or maybe there's one or two that are out there, but the quality is really low or it's a geographic region in the world where the the winners are yet to be determined. So on the plant-based side, those would be, I'd say, the main things. On the higher tech side, aside from the obviouses, like, again, the team, valuation, et cetera, we like companies that are pioneers in a particular technology, either in their region or globally. So if you look at our portfolio, there's a lot of these firsts. So Bonds, you mentioned, first and still only company in the world producing real meat protein via fermentation. Uh, Mission Barnes, uh, first and leading company focused on and producing cultivated fat uh, as an ingredient. Turtle Tree Labs, you mentioned, first and leading company in the world producing dairy products, both cows and human breast milk from cell cultivation, et cetera. And also regionals. So uh, we've got Avant, the first cultivated meat company in the greater China region, also the the first and and leading cultivated fish company in, in Asia period. And then Blue, first and, and, and still leading and only company at this point, cultivated seafood company in, in Europe. So we like those firsts for a few reasons, but I would say the most salient is that for any of the companies in the higher tech side to do well, they're going to need to raise a significant amount of capital to do the R&D they need. So uh, what we've seen from other companies in this space and other companies that, that I and my partner have invested in pre the Lever VC fund is those first movers, as long as what they're doing makes sense and has a strong team and so forth, they tend to get a lot of suck up a lot of the attention from the media, from investors, et cetera. Uh, and there's a lot of first mover advantage on the fundraising side. And so I think that's a significant advantage in a, a sector that needs a lot of R&D dollars. And so that's, that's one reason we like those sort of first movers. 
the, the last thing I'd note is that while all of the companies we invest in are focused primarily on the food sector and replacing animal protein, uh, conventional animal protein, uh, we like companies on the higher tech side that uh, I'd say we like them even more if they have secondary markets they can also target where there's much higher price points. And therefore, we can be much more confident about them being able to service that market. So an example might be uh, Avant is, is probably a good example there. So you know, they're a cell-cultivated seafood company focused on different types of marine protein. So they've cultivated fish meat and produced you know, fish cakes and so forth. They produce some luxury fish uh, seafood products as well. So longer term, that's, that's kind of the big market they're going after. But alongside that and in the shorter term, the same technology can also be used to produce this really high-value marine collagen and other marine-derived compounds that have this, these great functional values in other sectors like skincare, wound care, et cetera. So they've launched and are already shipping a product line that services those types of uses. And it's a, uh, the incumbents in that category are way, 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 way more expensive. They're already cheaper than incumbents in some of these categories, even while they continue to work to bring down cost. So we like companies like that. It just de-risks the investment a bit um, for them to be able to get some revenue traction in these other areas, even as they work towards entering the, the larger opportunity of disrupting conventional animal protein. I think just to summarize your answer, it sounds like it's, it's a combination of valuation, of taste, of addressable market, of brand and team, and then of winnability, right, based off the competitive environment and kind of the geographic saturation. And then I think just one other point you made that I'd love to go deeper on. You talked about kind of the need to avoid premium plant-based burger protein in the U.S., which makes sense. What is your view on Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods in general? I know you were an early investor in Beyond Meat. It feels like Beyond Meat is really kind of setting the tone in terms of really driving that mass awareness for the category, which I think is great for anyone really trying to enter the category. But but where do you stand in terms of kind of these two behemoths and how they've really impacted the, the industry as a whole? They've definitely dramatically grown it, for sure. And indeed, so both myself and, and our other partner, Lawrence, were earlier investors and beyond. Lawrence was also an earlier investor in Impossible. So I definitely have a lot of respect for them and certainly think it's, it's quite obviously of the best quality products globally in, in the plant-based meat space. So huge, huge amount of respect for them. And I think in terms of what they've generated to date is they're really, you know, I'd say have primary, uh, can take primary credit for just how much the space has grown in the past few years. The amount of media attention they've generated, the fact that they have products good enough to work in places like a Burger King or a Starbucks, for example. And then also what they've generated in terms of launching new companies and investment in the sector. We would not have nearly the number of startups in the sector that we do today were not for Beyond and Impossible and the financial and public success they've had. Similarly, their, their success has certainly also stimulated a lot, lot more investment into the sector. I think sometimes wise investment, sometimes not so wise investment, um, but, but they've certainly created the awareness among many in the investment community, the commercial venture capital community, and so forth, that alternative protein is, is part of the future protein. And there is financial opportunity here if you make smart decisions. So I think they've had quite a huge impact. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the size of the funding rounds we saw towards the, the later funding stages of Impossible obviously were quite inspiring. And then, 
you know, similar with Beyond Meat, but then seeing Beyond Meat then partner with the PepsiCo, it also shows just how, you know, prolific this sector is really becoming. I think one thing we've seen in the media is just a bit of pushback on really what meat is defined as, right? In, in the dictionary, we define meat as the flesh of an animal used as food. We define milk, you know, defined as a whitish liquid produced and given off by the breast or udder of a, of a female mammal. Are meat and dairy activists and lobbyists kind of right in arguing that a product can't formally be labeled as milk or meat if it's made of plants? Or, or kind of where do you stand on that kind of debate? Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd have a few thoughts there. So one is that if you look at the if you look at the first definition in the dictionary of the terms, it, it's exactly what you note. Know. And if you look up the standards of identity in the US or Europe or so forth, that, that's exactly what you'll see. But these terms have also been used for plant-based things. So if you look further down the list of usages of these terms in the dictionary, you will see other types of, of usages. On the milk side, milk has also been used as a term to represent the, I can't think of a better word than secretions or something along those lines that you can get from, yeah. from other plant ingredients. And on the meat side, you know, again, for similar, there's there's many instances of the term being used for like the, the meat of a nut or things like that, other things coming from from uh, plant-based ingredients. So while those aren't obviously have not been the primary uh, things that those terms refer to, they have been part of how those terms have been used. And you'll see those in a lot of dictionaries as well, even if you don't see them in the standards of identity. That's one comment. It's not totally new. A second comment would be that you know, obviously things, words are used to the extent they benefit people and give people an understanding about something and its nature and what they can expect from it. So, you know, calling a plant, you know, a, a white liquid that you put in your cereal or in your coffee that tastes basically the same milk, it's whether it's coming from almonds or coconuts or cows or, you know, goats or sheep for that matter. Obviously, as long as you're distinguishing where it's from and the consumer can understand that by calling it, goat milk or cow's milk versus almond milk. As long as you're doing that, I think having the second term milk in there gives consumers that key reference point they need to think about what's this going to look like, taste like, what's the nutrition roughly going to be, what are the use applications. And that's, you know, so to that extent, the extent to which language is being just being used by everyday people to make everyday decisions, I think it makes perfect sense to use terms like meat and milk for these products. Lastly, though, I think that while I very much think that for those reasons and other reasons and corporate free speech reasons, companies in the plant-based space should be able to use those terms, it probably also doesn't make a massive difference. If we look at companies and say that the plant-based milk base, there's all sorts of secondary terms used. Some use the word milk, some will call it a beverage, a drink, etc., and while this is completely anecdotal, I don't know of any studies done looking at the data on this, it doesn't, on the face of it, appear that there is a, a big difference in the sales of those companies, depending on the term they use. At any rate, what we can say for sure is that there are companies doing very well without the term milk on their packaging, just there's, there's plant-based meat companies doing very well without the term meat on their packaging. So you know, I guess this is sort of a collection of various thoughts and not a, a short, sweet thought in answer to your questions. But those would be some of the key things that jump to mind. No, great answer. And I, I think I know I've found the the whole Oatly kind of debate between Oatly's corporate team and, and some lobbyists pretty, pretty entertaining. And I think 
The point that I loved within your answer was just about kind of the use case of these products combined with the consumer transparency angle. And I think these products are, you know, being used in similar ways. For example, Oatly being used in a similar way to how conventional milk is being used. I think it's fine to call it milk as long as there's that consumer transparency coming from the company itself, which I think, you know, most companies aren't shying away from the fact that that these products are plant-based. They're actually telling it with pride because, right, it's great for the environment and, and it tends to also just be healthier. And then just another one that that also is a bit controversial, I think. W- one thing that, that I kind of actually am still quite concerned about is just the number of ingredients that, that I see in a lot of these emerging products. And again, not not to point fingers or anything, you know, Just Egg just got a billion dollar valuation. They're filing to go public. Obviously, a company that's had tremendous success in kind of the plant-based egg sector. And, and just going off that ingredient level, I was seeing, you know, products like calcium citrate, tetrasodium pyrophosphate. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. Potassium sorbate. Again, I think these are all in, in pretty small traces and, and, you know, predominantly just uses preservatives. But at the same time, I kind of raise an eyebrow when I see such a long ingredient list filled with kind of things that I've never heard of. And so, again, I, I, not to say that you know these companies aren't aren't great companies that have this long ingredient list, but just to understand where you, where your kind of point of view is when you're looking at companies and trying to go through the ingredient list, does that strike you as concerning, or is it something that you're not too concerned about? I'd say the short answer is not too concerned because consumers in general are not too concerned. If we're talking just you know, from a purely investment financial perspective, that is the determinative question, right? Is, is this going to affect sales? And if we look at the category, there are options out there in, in plant-based meat, dairy. I guess there's, there's not many egg companies, so there's not many you could compare just to. But in most of these categories, there's a diversity of companies with a diversity of ingredient labels, some that are on the super short, sweet, clean label side, some are, that are on that you know, 20, 30, 40 ingredient side. And you know, certainly all of the the majority of sales tend towards the longer label side are in companies that, that are tended toward towards the longer label side. And the interest and excitement and growth is mostly in those those sort of companies. So we think there's opportunities in both, right? We think there's definitely opportunities for companies where their play is short, uh, clean ingredient deck, targeting the audiences where that's a big value and still creating a good uh, good product. But clearly, there's a lot of consumer interest in, in products that have a lengthy label. Of course, it's not because they have a lengthy label. It's because those lengthy labels can, in many cases, lead to a product that tastes better. And so because consumers to date are totally fine, not, not all consumers, but the vast majority are totally fine with those lengthy labels, it makes us not concerned if we were looking at a company that had that. You know, obviously, it's, it's better to be shorter than, than not for that fraction of consumers that do care. But clearly, that's not impeded the success of many, many other companies in the space. Yeah, 100% agree. I think, right, taste is still the number one factor. Ingredients are important, but secondary to taste. I'm, I'm more curious, too, just to see from a long-term perspective as the sector matures, if that's something that consumers might start paying more attention to in you know, the next three to five years. We like to ask all of our guests a similar question on subscribing to wellness. What new or old habits are part of your daily routine that are enabling you to live a healthier life while managing the fund at Lever? Hmm. I, I do think that I have a number. I'm trying to think of what would be perhaps more useful or interesting. 
for folks who are interested in nutrition and wellness, in addition to, of course, great resources like this podcast, one that I would definitely recommend is a site called nutritionfacts.com. So the author of that book has written several you know, New York Times bestsellers on basically looking at all the peer-reviewed evidence on specific food types, ingredients, et cetera, and what are clinically shown in peer-reviewed research are shown to have real benefits and which are shown to have real detriments. And from that, just what are the practical insights that we can use and what are the things we should eat more of, what are the things we should eat less of? And so from that on the eat more of list, there's a number of things, some different spices, some specific fruits and vegetables like, like dark leafy greens and berries. And so for me, most days of the week, my breakfast is a smoothie that has berries, dark leafy greens, and six or seven of those spices that are particularly helpful and shown to correlate with reduced uh, more longevity and, and, and or uh, reduced risk of disease. So for me, that's become part of my daily uh, routine and would definitely suggest anyone else that's interested in that sort of thing to check out that site, nutritionfacts.com. That's really interesting. And I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Interesting for someone like me or a general consumer just trying to live a healthier life, but then also interesting for kind of like up and coming entrepreneurs who want to take on a health and wellness venture and are thinking about, you know, different ingredients. So very interesting. It's actually nutritionfacts.org.org. Noted. Very yeah. good. Thanks again uh, for spending the time with us today. We're, we're big fans and, and we can't we can't wait to see what's next for Lever. The portfolio is is super impressive and and we're, excited, we're excited to see where the fun goes next. Where can our listeners learn more about the latest going on at Lever VC? Yeah, so you know our, our website is levervc.com. So definitely can can check things out there. It's not a very dynamically updated site. We are going to start having more content going out Q3 of this year, so in the next couple of months. Yeah, I would say that's the best starting point. But if, if you want to get in touch, definitely feel free to just go to levervc.com, shoot us an email. We'll be happy to be in touch. My personal email is nick at levervc.com. So definitely don't hesitate to get in touch if you're interested in these same categories. Great. Thanks a lot, Nick. Really appreciate the time and, and have a great week. Thank you. You too.